Vincent is so done with art and all that, but his mom and uncle just won't stop going on about the amazing colors and composition of great masters like his namesake. Then his little sister disappears into a famous painting. What is a lad to do? Join us for this fantastic journey beneath the swirling sky with homeschool mom and middle grade author Carolyn Leilaglu. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the often artsy podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastic stories and sometimes classic paintings for God's glory. I'm E. Steve Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven and co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. And I'm Zach Van Gogh, and this is episode 181, What If You Fell Into Classic Paintings? And we're going to be talking about the book Beneath the Swirling Sky with author Carolyn Leilaglu. Zach, it seems to me that Van Gogh is like the most repeatable, most zany, most cartoon-friendly name of the classic artist. So it's no wonder that kids might want to jump into his paintings and solve a mystery and prevent some kind of deconstructionist villain from turning that which is supposed to be beautiful into something ugly. I was intrigued by the premise of this book and now this series uh, when we first caught wind of it. So I'm looking forward to chatting with Carolyn in just a moment. We're going to wheel a framed painting in here because I think we understand that you can only jump into a painting that has been framed. Those are the rules. And the rules for podcasts also dictate that you get some awesome, relevant sponsors in here. And our top sponsor is Oasis Family Media with another novel, a fantasy novel that just released a week or so ago, The Looking Glass Illusion by Sarah Ella. Step through the looking glass, slay the Jabberwock, seek the king. Alice is not prepared to face what awaits beyond the Tolji Wood. When she and the rest of Team Heart enter the fourth and final Wonderland trial, it's up to her to lead them to victory. But this trial is more than a game. If Alice and the others fail to defeat the Jabberwock and reveal the truth about Wonderland, more than points and fame will be lost. Enclave Escape presents The Looking Glass Illusion, book two in the Curious Realities series by Sarah Ella. Available today wherever fantastic books are sold. Pre-order now online or ask for it at your favorite bookseller or your local library. It's also available in audio from Oasis Audio. From there, I think we need to look at that painting. Something is happening. Someone is coming through. It's a framed painting, so it might be a restorationist jumping into the studio. Carolyn Leilaglu now enters. Carolyn Leilaglu is the author of the middle grade fantasy novel Beneath the Swirling Sky and the picture book Libraries Most Wanted. Carolyn is the granddaughter of art collectors, daughter of an art teacher, and homeschooling mong to four wildly creative kids. She's an award-winning author whose poems and short stories have appeared in children's magazines around the world, including one that I remember, Clubhouse Junior. Carolyn also reviews her favorite children's books on her platform, House Full of Bookworms. Carolyn, thanks for jumping into the studio today. Thanks so much for having me. Good to have you, Carolyn. So I got to ask you right away, which uh, stories in Clubhouse Junior Magazine did you write? Because my kids love that magazine and fight over it as soon as it comes in the mail. I I wrote um, a poem for Clubhouse Junior, and then I wrote a couple of Rebus stories. And that's actually been a while back, several years back. One was like a rodeo themed one, I think. 
Yeah. It's probably the copies then that got lost under the bed a long time ago, Zach. Uh, just like I lost a long time ago when I was a kid, I, I got the older Clubhouse magazine. It wasn't Junior. My little brother got Junior. I got the regular one for older kids. <laughs> for big kids. And they had this feature that revealed for the first time what all of the Adventures and Odyssey characters looked like, according to like extremely 1991 uh, artist impressions. And I, I loved finally seeing these characters for the first time. And then possibly during a move, the magazine was lost. But, uh, Carolyn, many works of art have not been lost and they have survived through the test of time. I'm curious which artworks and ideas led you to your origin story of enjoying both biblical truth and fantastic imagination. Okay. Uh, I mean, a lot of them. <laughs> and I know you usually ask this more in a Narnia way. Like, well, you are required by Christian law to say that Aslan is your Lord and Savior. That's, yes, exactly. That's the question I was expecting. Um, <laughs> So let me start with that, and then I'll go into art. But I discovered the Chronicles of Narnia in fourth grade. I, I grew up in a, a Christian family, uh, accepted Jesus really very young, um, and a Christian school, and discovered Narnia in fourth grade. And that really sparked my love of fantasy, um, in particular, um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And a lot of people have brought up that... <laughs> The kids enter Narnia through a painting in that book. One of my favorite Narnia portal devices, by the way. Yes. I know everyone's real partial to the wardrobe, but I like the painting just as much. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because I didn't even think about that until after I'd written the book and was was telling someone, they're like, oh, yeah, just like <laughs> the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is true. Um, so, yes, that was definitely my my number one growing up. But then for art, I think it's really always been. Uh, Van Gogh is my favorite. He kind of grew on me. I remember doing a report on him in fifth grade and thinking he was a little strange. But, you know, I really grew to love his art and I've um, had the privilege of seeing The Starry Night in person twice, which is just flabbergasting because it's not huge like you think it is. It's quite small. And then how the paint just like stands off the canvas. It's just like such a has such a presence, even though it, it's quite small. Where is it located? So it is at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, but that's actually not where I saw it either time. Oh, I saw it uh, in college and it was on tour in at the LA Museum of Art, I think, uh, LA County Museum of Art. And then I saw it this summer. It was actually at the Met in a special exhibit of Van Gogh cypresses. So that was really special. Part of my love of art came from going to my grandparents' house and they were art collectors and they literally had paintings on every single wall. They had like bronze sculptures. They had like knickknacks from their travels around the world. It was just kind of a magical place to visit. And then upstairs, they had a room that was just full of paintings stacked leaning against the wall. And so when I, that idea for this story first sparked, that's, that was the location. That's kind of where it came from. So it's really kind of set in their, a version of their house. I love that. That is like the best kind of Zillow house, you know, where you see uh, the internet memes that people spread of a most unusual interior decorated house or maybe some very strange color scheme, like someone has a room totally devoted to Elvis. Uh, one presumes that they're going to clear out the Elvis uh, artwork and kitsch before they sell the house, but that's the photo that got through to the website. But I would much prefer then a house that is covered in paintings, good paintings. I, I take it these were like if not, you know, Van Gogh art, because it's kind of expensive and you probably won't find that in someone's house, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. any kind of amazing art, you know, it, it, even uh, some what people would call kitschy art or, you know, like people often 
uh, make fun of particular evangelical types of art, but whole rooms full of them, though, I, I would think that even bad art, that would be an amazing effect to experience. It was really amazing. And it was good art. Um, it was mostly American art, uh, a lot of Western art, which was not really my thing, but it was still like very, you know, well done and kind of just sparks your imagination. And and you feel like this. It's, it was just a really cool experience to grow up kind of going to a museum each time I visited my grandparents' house in a way. I love that idea of traveling through art into a different world. It, it you know, obviously we talked about Voyage of the Don Treader, but it also makes me think of the 1990s video game Myst, where there's oh. these magical books called linking books and you open it and it plays a little video and then it transports you into this other world. And so yeah. it, it's a it's a video game about books. And then they've actually come out with books, you know, written just normal written books that are about the world. And you know, I've I've opened those hoping it would transport me there. But <laughs> nah, I'm still here in the the non-polygon world of <laughs> the real world. So too bad. Nice. We used to play that. My husband and I would play that when I was still in college. <laughs> now, in your story, Carolyn, your hero, Vincent, uh, namesake, uh, pretty clear there, does not like art. I'm curious what led to him having this rather contrarian take on things. Now, of course, if you're a kid and I don't know if Vincent is just really into video games, missed or otherwise, but maybe art seems really boring. Uh, art is very much uh, a thing of school. It's something that you have to do rather than something you want to do. Like, what are some objections to art that you've seen from kids uh, that you think this book uh, may help to uh, circumnavigate? Well, okay. So the thing about Vincent is he doesn't like art because he had a bad experience. And so he oh. actually used to love art and used to love painting and, and was really into it and then had a bad experience, as I think a lot of kids in school do. Like, if you ask, you know, a, a classroom full of, like, kindergartners who's an artist, they're all going to raise their hands, Right. And if you ask classroom full of second graders, you know, maybe 80%. And then by the time you get to like fifth or sixth graders, like maybe one kid's going to raise their hand, even though really we were all designed to create, right? We're made in God's image. And, you know, the first thing we learn about God in Genesis, this is not my original idea. It's from Dorothy Sayers in The Mind of the Maker. She says, it, we're, we're told we're made in God's image. And the first thing that we're told about God is that he's a creator. So that's got to be part of the way that we're made in God's image is we all have this desire to create and it doesn't have to be like drawing or painting or whatever. But I had a very similar experience to Vincent, not in uh, physical drawing or painting, but I had always wanted to be a writer from when I was really little. Um, and then around fifth or sixth grade, I realized, oh, this is this is hard. Like, you know, I have an idea and I'm writing and then it peters out and I don't know what to do. And um, just kind of thought, well, I'm not good at this. And so I'm going to quit. And I think that that is just a huge thing with kids. Kids either decide they're not good enough and quit. They compare themselves with others. Maybe someone makes fun of them, um, you know, completely undeservedly, usually, you know, how kids are. And then they just decide, I can't do this because art, you know, you're using, you're, you are expressing yourself, right? You're putting a lot of yourself on the page or the canvas or the keyboard. And um, it's very, uh, can be a very tender thing. And so when kids realize, oh, I can be hurt by this, they want to give up, right? So I'm really hoping <laughs> maybe my book can inspire some kids to not give up, not put away the paintbrush or the pen, um, but to keep keep pursuing it because it's worth it. Yeah, that speaks to me because when I was a kid, I loved to draw and and paint and, and do other kinds of things. 
But by, I don't know, high school, I guess, I realized I was only really good at drawing things that I could see. I had a much harder time drawing something from my imagination. And so I just kind of eventually gave up on it. I, I really enjoyed colored pencils or even watercolor of things that I could, I could look at. But just visualizing something and putting that on a canvas, uh, that was extremely difficult for me. And I just stopped <laughs> doing it and got into other things like photography or, or videography because you know, then I'm actually just capturing the things that I see rather than trying to recreate them. So I, yeah. I definitely resonate with Vincent. You know what I tell my kids when they say that they're not good at something? I say, you get good at what you do, <laughs> right? If they say, I'm not good at drawing people. Keep or, practicing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. then you need to draw some more people. If that's something that you want to be good at, you just keep keep doing it, right? That's what I wish I had known as a fifth grader, like that I, I should have kept doing it. Then I could have gotten good at it and not had to, you know, wait all this time. Well, in this case, too, you're leading uh, by example, Carolyn. You've written some other books and, of course, all the other articles we mentioned earlier. But uh, this book is the start of a new series called The Restorationists. So you've kind of got uh, what I would interpret there as a double meaning right there. Of course, people are familiar with someone who restores art professionally and the great painstaking care and professionalism uh, it takes uh, to be able to restore a work of art. Uh, I remember probably a few decades ago by now, uh, when they were talking about restoring uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper and just the absolute uh, breathtakingly um, acute work that they had to do in order to, to restore that. Uh, and yet also, I think the, the Christian is called, I think, in Scripture to be, in a sense, an, a, a restorationist of art and uh, getting back to that original calling of the creation mandate of Genesis 1 uh, to not only be fruitful and multiply uh, and steward the earth, uh, but also to create as we're created to do, uh, because God has created us first. Uh, that's something that we uh, still have to do uh, in order to glorify him. Uh, there's this whole issue, though, of being hurt and sin and other issues that get in the way. Uh, who are the restorationists, or can we even speak to uh, who they are in this new story world? Yeah, so the restorationists are a group of people who have the ability to travel inside paintings, and they actually have the job and duty of protecting them from the bad guys in this world who are the distortionists. So what the distortionists do is they come in, um, they not only steal paintings, but they... Um, they subtly alter them from the inside so that when people are looking at them, they are, um, instead of having the experience that the artist first intended, they are ending up with negative emotions and thoughts and attitudes that um, trickle out into the real world, right? Just as art can do to us, right? Like it can give us good feelings or bad feelings, you know, it, that do trickle out into our lives. So um, the idea is that the restorationists have to go and also fix these paintings that have been distorted by the distortionists so that um, it's not affecting society in a negative way. I love that. Uh, you know, that, that I just read uh, That Hideous Strength in the last year, and there's that scene, you know, if you're not familiar, where uh, Mark, the protagonist, is brought to this room where he's sort of being in, indoctrinated into this group, this inner ring. And they show him all these weird paintings, really disturbing things like a woman with like hair coming out of her mouth and then just other just odd creatures. And then um, it's not really s detailed exactly, but then there's other paintings that almost look right. But then you start to look at these weird defects and it's sort of the uncanny valley. Of, of, it's like almost right, but it's off just enough to make you kind of disgusted. And then the whole point was, to make him comfortable in disgust with uh, 
with this sort of anti-beauty that they were forcing. And it wasn't just paintings. It was the architecture in the room. It was the furniture, uh, the colors and just all kinds of things. And it's, that is very much an ideology that floats around a lot that, that objective beauty isn't real and that you should just get used to this kind of ugliness. And, but we all have a visceral reaction to that. And I'm thinking now of this, uh, story that went viral, uh, about 10 years ago of monkey Christ. So this was a <laughs> painting of Jesus Christ in a, this was in uh, Spain in a, uh, like a, a little church in the foothills of Sierra de Moncayo. I'm reading the story here. And a parishioner noticed that this painting of Christ was, it was flaking off and she's like, Hey, I can help. Uh, I can restore that. And well, she didn't really know what she was doing. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of a skill you have to have <laughs> as a restorationist. She bless her heart, tried to make it look good. Uh, but Jesus looks like a monkey man. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll try to put this in the show notes or you could just Google monkey Christ. And it, you know, it's become a meme that the original painting was, yeah, it's, it's this work that was about a hundred years old and, uh, just doesn't look so great now. And so I imagine Vincent has to acquire certain skills. Uh, so, so that must be a journey for him from trying art to failing at it and then having to kind of level up his skills to then be able to, to do this job of protecting the art. Yeah. So in the, in the book, the, all the restorationists have what I don't call a skill, but a gift. So, because I, you know, I want to acknowledge that really everything we have is, is a gift, these things that we're good at. So each of them have different gifts. So like George's gift is navigation and um, Uncle Leo's gift is restoration. So, um, so Vincent has to find his gift within the restorationist world. And I'm not going to say what that is, because that's kind of a big part of the plot. Um, but yeah, finding your gift and, um, you know, he, he has a lot of skills already because he was painting and trained by his mom. Right. And, and I don't see it as that he was bad at art before, but I see it as he was listening to the wrong voices okay. about his art, um, instead of listening to his, his mom's feedback, who was an art teacher and, you know, he didn't know she was restorationist at the time. He's listening to bullies, right? And and taking his self-worth and his um, deciding what he should do based on that, right? Being hurt. So I, I think, you know, we have to listen to the right voices, people who love us about about our our art and about our our gifts that we have. Sometimes someone else is, is able to point out something that you can't really see truly about yourself. Amen to that. Uh Artists who are training need mentors. We need people who've gone ahead in that journey who can find the best artworks, the best kinds of stories. And one way you can do that is to join our Lorehaven Guild. That is our special castle in the cloud, uh, cloud singular, because it is a Discord server. And you can join by getting your exclusive invitation code by subscribing at lorehaven.com. You then can sign up for our updates. Any new articles, news, Tuesday podcast episodes, or Friday reviews of the best Christian-made, fantastical, published novels, you also get your exclusive invitation code to join the Lorehaven Guild. And what we do there is not only talk about topics like this or other articles, any other stories that are going on out there, but also we host monthly book quests. Uh, jumping in like restorationists, except the books uh, hopefully have no need of restoring because they're the best ones we can find, uh, into the best Christian-made, fantastical novels. Uh, the current one uh, should be wrapping up as this episode comes out is for the Beast of Taylorsend, uh, and then in the first week of October, we're actually getting a book that is out of print. We made some special arrangements with the author 
for Koenig's Fire, an exceedingly spooky story and rather dark story, but also kind of matching today's topic about what happens when humans sin against one another, against God uh, and against nature, which is the painting of God and what happens when nature decides to strike back. And oh, by the way, there are also Nazis and plant men. So you'll want to join our book quest for Koenig's Fire. If you can get that book, just join the Lorehaven Guild by subscribing free at lorehaven.com. Carolyn, our world is full of full motion video with 2K, 4K, soon to be 18 and a half K. We've got so many different platforms and streaming services. And of course, there are the ever present video games. And not to diss video games or TV shows or movies. We like plenty of those around here. But I just wanted to uh, jump into this topic specifically about why when so many things exist that can dazzle our eyes and that are also qualifying as art in their own way, why should we specifically focus on classic art? Uh, A Renaissance art, like the old masters, uh, even older uh, than Vincent van Gogh. So uh, number one, I think, is because we're made as incarnate people, right? We are not digital people. We're not spirits, right? And so I, I not, I mean, I love video games and movies and stuff too, but like there's a certain disconnection that happens with those things versus seeing a real painting, especially in real life. Um, it's it's a, a very different experience, right? Than, than even just looking at it on a screen. And it's also important that we're connected with our history and know where we're from, right? What the great artists of the past have done, like that's actually what how artists um, study is they have to know everything that came before. And, um, and we, we don't want to lose that. We've had these great artists in our culture. A lot of Western art, especially is Christian art. And, um, and it would be tragic to, to lose that and lose our, our knowledge and appreciation of that. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, <laughs> maybe kids who read this book, I've had a couple of people, a couple of moms tell me already, the kids will be like, oh, that's a Van Gogh on the, like a coffee mug or something. Um, so hopefully that'll spark some interest in, in realizing and remembering, hey, we have these really great cultural treasures that, um, that are important and they're available for us to go look at. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, that's one thing that our volunteer review uh, noticed when we saw the pitch for the book, even before it came out. Uh, she's a homeschool mom, and she said, hey, this would make for a really great unit study, you know, and also it's a fabulous story. So we want to enjoy it as a story first, you know, the adventure, uh, and then make sure that kids are enjoying the journey. And only then might you come along and say, hey, you know, if you liked that book, then we can talk more about Van Gogh. We can talk more about some of those older paintings and then maybe do a study about it. And then at that at that point, it's fun. Uh, it's something yes. fun and enjoyable to understand mm-hmm. because we're looking at the paintings from outside uh, when our heroes in the fiction have already jumped into them. Yeah, or to to ask your kids like, what would it be like to be inside this painting? Because a lot of artists actually painted themselves into their paintings. So yeah. one of the paintings in the book, for instance, is uh, is Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Rembrandt is in the painting. That. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I that's unfortunately book, one I... that no one can see anymore because it has been stolen and not recovered. Oh, no, but, I didn't know that that part of the story. Yeah. So in my story, the bad guys have that one, obviously. Oh. It's been come, kind of a pop culture thing, actually. It appeared in um, in Cobra Kai in the villain's lair. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, you'll see it different places as kind of a reference for like this. This is this mysterious stolen art that we yeah. can't get back. We don't know how to get back. Well, I love what you said about we're not just digital beings. You know, we we live in a physical world because we're physical beings and we need to be physically near to art. 
especially in the last couple of years, we've you know, we've all gone through the the pandemic, the shutdowns, the the Zoom life, the and and everything that's sprung out of that, like the whole avatar culture, just trying to present yourself as this online persona that so many people live by, and all kinds of I- identity issues that come with that. But you know, there, there's something about seeing a painting with your eyes that, like you said, with, with the Van Gogh painting, there, there's like a texture to it. It's not, you can't see on a screen. And there was this point a number of years ago, I think it was back in 2008. And I visited a, uh, the Smithsonian art museum in Washington, DC. I was there at an event where I was a photographer. And so I was just taking photos of everything with this event. The, the museum tour was just part of the, the conference I was at. And so I just naturally started taking pictures of all the the paintings there, which they let you do. And then I just thought, why am I doing this? Like, and at one point I walked up the stairs and there was this gigantic painting of something from the 18th century. I want to say it was Napoleon, but it was, it was something like that, like from that era. And I mean, it was like a floor to ceiling painting. It was huge. And I thought my camera cannot do justice to this painting. And I'm just going to look at it. What on a computer screen or a tablet or a phone? Like, what is the point of that? I need to just look at this for a minute with my eyes and remember it. And it's funny. That's the one painting I remember. I don't really mm. remember the other ones that I took pictures of. And again, I don't go back and look at those pictures. Like, why do we, what is that impulse where we, we just visit places now to take pictures of them to never look at again. It's like, we mm. don't trust that the experience of seeing things with our eyes is meaningful or, or can be memorable. But I think you're right. It, it's something that we absolutely need to experience. And, and it's counterintuitive because we think, oh, I, I have all the paintings of the world at my fingertips on this magic glass. Why go anywhere? Why, why drive or walk anywhere to see them in person? And you go a step beyond that where they don't just go see them. They, they go inside of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Zach, you mentioned earlier reading uh, Lewis's That Hideous Strength uh, in that scene that I just now realized can be retconned uh, as uh, Mark Studdick uh, going into that bizarre mutated art world that's designed to desensitize him to beauty, uh, whereupon he's looking at these paintings on the wall of one of which I think uh, may have showed someone with their hands clasped at their waist. And then suddenly something's wrong there. That person had 28 different interlocking fingers. Oh, oh this is a eye <laughs> art. So Lewis, in <laughs> his great a prophetic uh, journey, uh, definitely <laughs> foresaw the rise of AI art and the, and the various <laughs> glitches that can result there. But it kind of speaks to, uh, Zach and I did the AI episode a few months ago, so we won't redo the whole thing. But it does speak to this idea that humans are made to admire not just art, but art by human beings. And mm. not that that means a, techno- a technology that allows you to see the art that maybe you'd never, ever see. Like, I've, I've never seen the Mona Lisa, but I've seen photos of it. I've seen maybe videos of it, uh, for example. But the more removed you are from something like that, the more you have delivery devices designed to get this thing to you, the less impactful it can be. And then how much more so if you have, quote, artwork, end quote. Uh, that has been assembled by a program, artificial intelligence or otherwise, uh, based on having looked at all these different artworks, just fed it through the program in order so it can kind of do a pixel predictive mechanism uh, to kind of guess at what an artwork might look like based on uh, the words that you feed it. I am 
allergic to that kind of thing now. And I just wonder mm-hmm. then, Carolyn, will there be a sequel of the, the Restorationists where our heroes jump into an AI art and become hopelessly <laughs> embroiled in not. that debate? Okay. <laughs> they, no. they will not go into AI. I, I will out. say... Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so actually, one of the one of the things in the world of the restorationist is you uh, you can only enter framed paintings. You you go into the painting, and then all the paintings of a single artist are interconnected, right? And so they talk about it being connected by the artist's mind. So there would be no mind to connect those AI uh, artworks. It'd basically, it'd be a wreck and Ralph if you jumped into an AI yeah. painting. It's not even a painting. Yeah. Okay, the fake door. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Russ Ramsey. He's the author of um, Rembrandt is in the Wind, but he has oh, a really great yeah. thing to say about this is that um, when he goes and looks at a piece of art, the two questions he asks are who made this and why? And if the answer to the first question is AI, there is no answer to the second question. Art has to be human. Yeah, That's very That's true. Very I was saying before we started recording it, it just occurred to me. Uh, that the Christian should be looking at uh, artwork when we do, and then asking, I think, not only who made this and why, but the third question, if there's one, it should be like, to whom can I give the glory? And the answer is always mm. the same. It's the Sunday school answer, Jesus Christ. Yes, I can thank God for the artist, but I know that the ultimate capital C creator who gave that artist the gifts, as you said, Carolyn, is our creator himself. And so I can then be moved. I, I've got a direction. Um, for that movement, I can not only feel moved, feel inspired, but I can then turn that into action and then feel gratitude and thanksgiving towards the Lord God Almighty for giving the artist the ability to capture God's creation or, or an idea derived from God's creation, a, a truth, if not a natural scene, you know, a basket of fruit, uh, people, you know, collecting grain at midnight or, or whatever the subject is, or even the more, um, you know, abstract stuff that uh, Van Gogh was known for. You know, it's not necessarily photorealism that he's known for. But if I'm looking at AI, I can't really worship God unless it's, well, God, thank you so much for giving the programmers, you know, bless their hearts, the ability to come up with something wild like this. You know, that is still a form of art too, but it's not good, honest, clean human art like you would get, you know, even with human beings who are putting together a video game. And by the way, one of my favorite video games has a scene where the heroine wakes up and is uh, is exposed to these various paintings that someone has collected over the millennia, uh, you know, bypassing a dystopia. And every painting she looks at has clearly been scanned in from a real life painting, and it fits into the story. Where if you mm. click on their painting, you know, she's she's looking at it, and then you know, listening to this other character describes why she collected this artwork and what it means to her. And then it figures into the story. So they've actually done something creative with the painting besides just use it as background or something. That's cool. I like that because that's the kind of thing that makes you want to go research or find if you can see something like that in real life, right? And yeah, that's I, I think that's great. Exactly. I steered Aloy. It was a game called Horizon Forbidden West. And I looked at every single painting. I went through every step of the dialogue tree because I'm that kind of player. And then, yes, I got pretty interested in this. And by the way, they were pretty honest about the religious origins in these uh, in these paintings, too, which is kind of fun for a fairly secular humanist video game. We were talking earlier, too, not just about AI, uh, but about Van Gogh, uh, which leads me to a, a fascinating uh, interview I actually uh, listened to from the Thinking Biblically podcast back in July of 2018. Uh, they were interviewing an author of a book called Vincent Van Gogh's Journey of Faith. And although it's not just Van Gogh we're talking about, I think that's this fits into the idea of people who 
maybe learned not to like art because of something terrible that happened to them. And then that leads to the whole stereotype of either the starving artist or the tortured artist. You know, it seems that at least in some elite circles, we can only appreciate art if there's some tragic backstory tied up with it. And one thing that this author did, while not denying that Van Gogh had an extremely tragic life, one thing he did, uh, this author, William Havlicek, uh, blew my mind. Uh, he actually challenged the theory uh, that Van Gogh had, as they say on Instagram, to bypass the censors, unalived himself. Uh, this author said, no, actually, he was like, he got involved in the fight because he was trying to re do the right thing and he was trying to rescue someone. And I forget the details, but it just struck me as a way to maybe kind of subvert that idea that the only reason we can appreciate art is by tying it in with some sort of tragedy or sin or nihilism, nihilism, however you pronounce it. Uh, you can appreciate this art uh, because God has done good things through the life of this artist, even if there is tragedy and starving and all of that stuff uh, tied in with the backstory. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you look at Van Gogh's Starry Night, the, the backstory of that is he painted it while he was in the asylum. And that painting, I think, is so inspirational. And really, you you see what a, a night sky feels like, you know, right? You see um, really the glory of God in the, in the sky, right? So I I just love that yeah I, I, and Van Gogh you know he had a lot of a lot of good and a lot of bad I don't know I don't think he ever lost his his faith um, but he did lose his faith in the church you know it was kind of sad but well I like this device of the paintings connecting together because they're all connected to the mind of the artist and in how that connects you as I mean just in the real world that connects us to the artist and kind of what they were going through uh, and that really is the point of looking at art it's it's making that connection to another human when uh my wife naomi was a engineering student in mechanical engineering um she would just kind of get sick of of class and lab work and, and stuff and so she would just go for a walk through the art gallery on her college campus and that was kind of her place to find peace and sanity and just get a break from everything but she also loves history and so any painting that she's really become interested in she's learned the story behind it and it's always fun whenever we see a painting in a movie and she'll either if she's not familiar with it she'll go look it up if she is familiar with it she'll tell me the story about it and, it, and it's just neat to see these connections and in, in how we still make connections to them uh one example is a, a movie we both love uh is a tom cruise movie and yes we, we're unapologetically tom cruise fans we <laughs> love almost every movie tom cruise is in almost but the one that we particularly love is Oblivion from 2013. And there's this painting of this young woman laying in a field, kind of crawling, looking towards this house on the horizon. It's called Christina's World. Christina's World. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's just, it's, it really, it's so emotional looking at it. And th the painting in the movie is in this kind of human preserve where they're hiding from the aliens. And then um, they, they, they try to keep it after, you know, there's death and destruction. It's like very important to them to keep this painting. And one of the characters says, you know, it, it reminds me of home. It's like this sense of longing. And so it's like, and then you can read about the story about it. it it's about a woman that she had muscular dystrophy or a muscular disorder, but she didn't want to use a wheelchair. So she liked to crawl places. Mm -hmm. And so even that is kind of interesting. Like there's a story behind that. And then now there's all these places and there's, there's other movies and books that the, the painting is shown up in. And so once you learn that story, just this is just one painting, right? But it's like once you learn that, then you see, okay, so this is why the filmmakers chose that for that scene. 
And this is how it relates to that story. And mm-hmm. so you start to kind of build all these little interlocking islands of meaning, but all, all because that original image had a meaning to it. Back to the whole AI thing that there is no meaning <laughs> to it because there's no point to it. I, I like playing with AI stuff. Full disclosure, I, I think it's fun, but it, but it's fun and kind of like a, like boys like to play with slime and you know that that kind of thing. It's just like fun. Well, that's a great comparison. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't that connection to like oh th- this is really. Pre-. I mean, every now and then there is like an AI image that everyone notices that goes viral. Like there, there's one recently that went viral of. Yeah, I Jesus know which one that is. Over yes. the tables. Yeah, the- that <laughs> is a violation of God yeah. and in nature. That's a violation of nature and nature's God right there. Right. And also and, a second commandment violation because right. now you're and, looking at a graven image, graven and, by AI too, yes. which is worse. And, and if, to your listener, if you don't know this image, you can Google it. But the AI interpreted the scene from John 2 is not Jesus using his hands to lift up the table of the money changers and flipping them over, but Jesus himself flipping over the table in a somersault. Yeah, it's a rather epic <laughs> anime style flip too. I think it's before he unleashes his uh, super cyan attack. So whether it's AI art uh, or real art, uh, human art, video games, classic paintings, whatever, parents need discernment in order to help their kids enter these worlds uh, and sort out the good, the beautiful, and the true versus the idols. And one resource that helps you do that is our third sponsor, the Pop Culture Parent a nonfiction resource that's co-authored by myself as well as uh, Ted Turneau and Dr. Jared Moore. It's available from New Growth Press, and it is a handy guide that takes you through the purpose of popular culture. Why do we have art? Why do we have fantastical stories, any kinds of stories, uh, games, songs, any of that? What is it even for? Is it just to morally edify the kids or distract them while you get some work done? Or does it have a deeper meaning? And from there, we go through case studies that are custom-tailored to each age group. Younger kids, older kids, and teenagers with specific examples helping you go through five questions to explain how you engage these stories. Parents can use these questions to not just analyze the story, uh, but start thinking, I think, more Christianly about what these stories are for and then help their kids to do the same. That is in the Pop Culture Parent, the nonfiction book from New Growth Press. And we'll have that link along with all the other sponsored links in our show notes for episode 181. Carolyn. Chapter three, what is next then for you and the restorationists? You got this shiny logo up there at the top. That to me says series. Is this a book one? And if so, can you drop a whole bunch of spoilers and exclusives here just to favor your friendly folks at Fantastical Truth? It is a book one and I will tell you what I can. So it's going to be a three book series. Uh, Book two, I just finished editing a couple weeks ago, and um, that takes place when Vincent comes back over the summer to uh, train as a restorationist at the the farm with Leo and George's parents. Um, But it is told from George's perspective this time. You know, she thinks that she's wanted someone else to be a friend and be um, a fellow restorationist with her all this time. But then uh, the, the reality is that it's actually difficult for her to share the spotlight. And she's been an only child and kind of had all the attention for so long. Um, and there's some comparisonitis going on um, with between her gift and Vincent's. And so the book is really about no gift being small and the just the value of small things. And that is going to be coming, Lord willing, sometime next fall. I don't have a date yet. Um, and then a book three will be hopefully the following fall. Okay. So titles TBD, but release windows are likely, but not absolutely set in stone for fall of 2024 and then maybe fall of 2025. 
Yep. Well, that is fantastic. And these books also are illustrated too. I don't want to leave they without uh, crediting your illustrator. Uh, is this yeah. like, a, because it's a chapter book for middle grade readers, is it like an illustration for every chapter? Or how exactly does that work and uh, any props to your illustrator you want to give? Oh my goodness. Okay. Vivian Toe is the illustrator and she is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, the cover is just phenomenal. I think you can't help but want to pick up the book when you see it. But yeah, it, it's not one illustration per chapter. Um, there's maybe like, oh gosh, I didn't count them, but maybe like six like bigger like full page illustrations. And then there's like small little details um, kind of interspersed throughout. And then another cool thing about the book, this was my editor's vision and she's just amazing. Um, let me just shout out to her, Boon Mia Shola. Um, but she decided that when the the kids go into the corridors between the paintings, which is a very dark place, that the actual color of the page would change. And um, and then there's a point at which the uh, the pages go from, from white to gray to actually black. And I'm not going to spoil why that is, but um, it just really gives the book a very immersive feeling. Ah, see, that's something that we miss because at Lorehaven, we have to stick to the digital copies yeah. in order to get it to the best possible reviewer. So once again, uh, physical beats digital. There's just some stuff uh, that the digital uh, delivery device cannot beat. Uh, that is marvelous. So I'm looking forward then to get a, a physical copy of the first book of the Restorationists, uh, Beneath the Swirling Sky, obviously a reference there to uh, the classic Van Gogh work. Carolyn, really appreciate you stopping by. I look forward to tracking with this series and uh, seeing where Vincent and his friends will jump into next. And I guess with that, then we'll need to wheel that painting back in here and then you can <laughs> jump on out of here. But first, of course, uh, how do folks uh, keep track of your life and work? Where can folks go to learn more about your books? Okay, folks can find me at therestorationist.com since Carolyn Leilaglu is a bit hard to spell. There's also carolynleilaglu.com or um, anywhere on social as House Full of Bookworms. All right. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Well, Stephen, as a child of the 80s, the painting I always think about falling into is the one from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where the character Cameron stares at uh, towards the end of the movie, they go to the Art Institute of Chicago. I actually got to visit there uh, about four or five years ago. And the painting is a, uh, a pointless style painting. It's huge. It's called A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte. I don't know how to pronounce that. It's by George Surratt. And it's a really interesting painting as, as a pointless because the more the closer you get to it, the more you look at it, it doesn't make any sense. It's just all these little dots. But then when you step back, you see this really uh, amazing you know, scene. And it's just incredible to think about how did someone make that with all those little dots? And I found this interview with the filmmaker of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, John Hughes. And he said, uh, quote, I always thought this painting was sort of like making a movie, the pointless style. You don't have any idea what you've made until you step back from it. The more Cameron looks at it, there's nothing there. He fears that the more you look at him, the less you see, uh, in quote. So, you know, very profound moment in the film. It was amazing to actually go see that painting and think about what if I could go to the scene? Like it, it just seems like a fun type scene. Of course, everyone's wearing these, you know, the old fashioned clothes and everything. And so would you want to have to dress up to that just to go to the park? I don't know. I'd, I'd rather wear more casual clothes, but it's a mesmerizing painting. So it, it's, if you get a chance to go see it, you definitely got to go see it. Steven, something I really like what Carolyn said is that it's important to be connected with history. And so that, that's why we study art. And so to you, our listener, 
I would love to know what are some of your favorite paintings and why do they matter to you? I, I think that's the really the the key thing that we got at from our discussion. It's not just you know you like a painting because it's pretty, but it means something, and maybe there's a story behind why it means something to you or why it meant something to the artist. So send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or you can comment on this episode on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the episode page on Lorehaven. And please subscribe free to lorehaven.com. You can get updates on new articles, book reviews, and join our Lorehaven Guild, our exclusive Discord server. That's where we get a lot of our feedback for episodes like this one in our comm station. We had a few notifications roll in uh, after I did a solo show for episode 179. That's the one about fake real men versus good men, uh, inspired by uh, the book The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. Uh, we didn't have her as a guest, uh, but she actually did see that episode, and she herself commented when I posted it on my uh, own social media. She said, this post proves that artistic people understand books better than most people. I would agree uh, with the caveat that everyone has the capacity to be creative. It's just that we forget. Or as Carolyn said, some people have a bad experience with art, just as a lot of people have had bad experiences with men or bad experiences with women for that matter. And it suddenly colors your experience of everything. And it's not good. We are made to be restorationists because Christ has restored us if we do have faith in him. So Great yeah. way is to debunk the fake real men that we've met or uh, seen in stories and comics and such, and instead understand that we're made men anyway, or made to be good men. Yeah. Well, Stephen, just to bounce off of that, I've interacted a little bit with Nancy on on Twitter, and I I definitely understand the why she's saying this, which is because a lot of people have maliciously misquoted her and misunderstood her to make some other kind of political point. And then and they a actually lot of emotions go, tied up with this yeah. issue. Absolutely. And then they actually go and read what she's written. They're like, Oh, okay. It's not making, you know, whatever point I thought it was in my head. And, you know, you, you look at some of these, well, frankly, just political activists that are doing this and yeah, there, there's really no artistic sense to anything they're doing. It's just, they're just churning out content. Uh, in some cases, just more propaganda kind of stuff. And so I, I think she's probably kind of had her fill of that. And so it, it must have been refreshing for her to see your take on this and that that solo episode you did, because, yeah, we we do value the role of art. And, and I think just by having to study things carefully, it does give you a little bit more of that listening ear, which unfortunately, a lot of critics uh, seem to lack when they've encountered her material. Well, it also gave me a great opportunity uh, to talk about a peace-loving samurai and, of course, uh, that amazing <laughs> uh, Broke the Anime Western live-action adaptation curse series One Piece on Netflix, uh, which a lot of now folks in the guild that we've talked about uh, have been discovering that. It started off as a manga, and now it's also an anime, and now it's also a live-action. That wasn't terrible. In fact, it was really great. And we had a hero of the Lorehaven Guild calling himself Joe A. Hasty Int, uh, he was also finding good men in One Piece, both the anime and the live action. And he said, Usopp, as of his introductory arc in season one, is a good young man. He lays his life down to protect his village, turns down an opportunity to inflate his ego, and acts as a father to his crew of young pirates. Another One Piece real man, Zeph, owner of the floating restaurant with the fighting cooks. That dude is such a giga chad dad to Sanji, the way he sacrificed for him and mentored him. That's very true. The story about Ziff, I've noticed, who is like a uh, former pirate uh, who is now 
a five-star chef on the Barati restaurant. And he also has the world's most ridiculous Giga Chad blonde mustache. So he's basically a walking, talking meme from a manga originally drawn in the late 90s. <laughs> Zeph has a backstory of sacrifice and multiple different sacrifices and just a way to die to self that is illustrated actually in different ways in the original uh, anime uh, as well as the live action. And it's a little bit gross if you think about it in either way. So two very different ways that the Zeph sacrifices himself. I don't know if I'd call him a real man. I think he was a real man, a pirate, you know, who does turn into a good man, uh, which is really the trajectory of that episode and the trajectory of uh, Nancy Piercy's book. Uh, also in the guild, we had a comment from Mahina who said, Theo from the Morgan L. Bussey's Secret in the Mist is willing to put his life and risk his reputation, fortune and safety to save those less fortunate than him by carrying in the scientific work that got his parents killed. Also taking care of and loving Cass in a respectful way. End quote. Well, that, that's really cool. That's, uh, uh, we interviewed Morgan a few episodes back about the uh, kind of the zombie world that exists uh, along with airships, which is a fun combination. So definitely go check out that interview and check out Morgan's book. Speaking of dangerous things that can happen in the air, this spooky season, a storm is coming and it will change your dreary Kansas life from its 1938 sepia tones into a magical world with a yellow brick road, plus bubbles and little people and urban studio legends. And just in time for Halloween, a famously wicked Western witch from movies to musicals to the original books by L Frank Baum. We will explore the wizard of Oz. What are the wonderful things he does? And why has this older fantasy novel captured the imaginations of so many people, including Zach's own sister, Nicole? By the way, don't be a distortionist. Don't go off ruining art for ugly means. Art was made to be beautiful. It was made to be beheld. And it was made to be human. God wants people making wonderful works of art so that we can appreciate not just the gifts that he has given the artist, but so that we can be moved to worship him. Let us therefore act as restorationists as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.